0: Now, all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis.
1: Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is the (laughs) Attorney General of the state of North Carolina, Josh Stein. He is the 50th Attorney General and has uh, been in that role since 2017. And uh, has been a frequent guest on our program. So welcome back, Mr. A.G. Nice to have you with us.
2: Don, it is always a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, there's so many things we can talk about, uh, and we uh, always look forward to your updates on the various and sundry things that you're dealing with. Uh, The opioid crisis has sort of slipped back into the news, and therefore, while it uh, looked like we were making some progress in winning that war, but uh, it, along with some other uh, addiction problems, are sort of slipping back in. So, bring us up to date on where that stands and and, uh, how that affects your office.
2: Thanks, Don. Yeah, the opioid crisis remains absolutely devastating. In fact, we're at the deadliest moment of what is the deadliest drug epidemic in American history. Uh, and we're really in what is the third phase of this crisis. The first phase were the pills. You know, Doctors were prescribing too many because the drug companies had sold the healthcare professionals a bill of goods. They said opioids were the most effective way to treat pain. And they were not addictive. And it turns out that neither of those things are true. But millions of Americans became addicted as a result. The second phase was the heroin crisis. When heroin started being pouring into the country, it it was at a cheaper price than buying the pills on the street. And so a lot of people started using heroin, and heroin became the leading cause of death. Now it's a synthetic opioid called fentanyl. Fentanyl is actually a legitimate pharmaceutical uh, for cancer patients. But when we talk about fentanyl on the streets, it's not the prescription fentanyl. It's fentanyl that is manufactured in Mexico using chemicals from China and then brought into the country. And so we have to do a better job stopping it at the border. And in fact, uh, honestly, last year they stopped more at the border by an order of magnitude than they ever had before. The problem is, is it just keeps coming and coming in waves. We also have to spend effort breaking up the drug trafficking rings that are in our state, in North Carolina. And, and to that end, I have put in a, a request to the General Assembly for a fentanyl control unit, a specialized group of prosecutors here at the Department of Justice to support local district attorneys across the across the state go after these very complicated and time-consuming cases. So I'm hopeful that the legislature will give us those prosecutors so we can do that work. All of that has to do with what we call the supply of these drugs. The other half of the equation, of course, is demand, because as long as there are people demanding drugs, somebody's gonna try to find a way to get them here. And that's why we have to reduce demand. As you know, Don, I went after these big drug companies that created and fueled this crisis. And I put together a national bipartisan coalition of state attorneys general, and we've taken them to court and are winning. We won $26 billion in the national opioid settlement that started paying out last year. Uh, And last year here in North Carolina, we got about a hundred million dollars that was distributed all across the state. And I can explain to you how it was distributed and the limitations on its use and the transparency about the investment so that the people have confidence in how this money will be uh, spent. But we weren't done because there were other drug companies, including the big national pharmacy chains that we held accountable just this year for over $20 billion. So when you put all of these deals together, it's north of $50 billion, and our state share would be 1.4 billion. So we're talking about about $1.5 billion coming to North Carolina because of the cases we have brought that will go to help people struggling with addiction enjoy a healthier and happier future so we're making progress but sadly there is a long way to go
1: well these uh situations once they get out of control uh I've heard people talk about the horse getting out of the barn in many cases, it's more akin to the toothpaste getting out of the tube. Sometimes it's it's not as easy to put it back. You can put a horse back in a barn a lot easier than you can put toothpaste back into a tube.
2: That is definitely true. We've made 85% of the money go to the local governments, but regardless of how much uh, of where the money goes, it has to go to attack the crisis. And it can be either prevention efforts, harm reduction efforts, uh, treatment, or recovery services. And as I travel the state and meet with the county officials who are spending this money, they're making incredible progress.
1: So how are some of the uh, uh, the uh, local governments uh, us- utilizing it? Uh, you might want to give us a few examples.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to. <laughs> it, 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 they're doing it in a lot of different ways. Some are hiring what we call... Um, uh, post overdose response teams. These are like EMTs who go to visit somebody after they've had an overdose to connect them to treatment services so they can get healthy again. Some communities are buying Narcan, which is this miracle drug that o- counteracts an overdose to keep somebody alive. Others are paying for treatment services or crisis facilities where they can take somebody who is in the middle of uh, withdrawal. Um, some are investing in programs to educate young people in school. Others are trying to buttress efforts within the criminal justice system to help people deal with their addiction so they can get out of the criminal justice system and get into the healthcare system where they can become healthy and well. Um, so, different strategies, different needs in different communities. And we wanted to make sure that local governments had the flexibility to choose within a menu of options, those that made the most sense for their conditions.
1: So uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, the cure period. How long does it take a person on average who's addicted to fentanyl? How long does it take under treatment to uh, restore them to the point where they no longer have that addiction?
2: Well, there's no single pathway to getting healthy. Um, the withdrawal period uh, can take six, seven days, and that's really intense because your body at that point is screaming to get the the chemical in your system and to go through that process, as I understand it, it, is very agonizing. But when you get past that first week, you then have to go into a treatment program and you can either go inpatient or you can do outpatient. Inpatient is where you go to a facility Um, Some are as short as 30 days, those do not have near the success rates as treatment programs that are in person for six months or longer. There are some programs, Don, that are actually one to two years long. Uh, But then, but some people can do well in outpatient if they get the medication, this medication assisted therapy. This is actually one form of addiction for which medication can make a big difference Substance use disorder, opioid use disorder is a chronic disease like diabetes, like uh, uh, heart disease, where you may get on a medication for the rest of your life, but that medication helps you to remain healthy so you can be a happy, uh, productive citizen. So you could have um, outpatient with MAT where you're having counseling to deal with whatever underlying issues emotionally that may have led you To using drugs in the first place uh, and be very successful so there is no single path forward and you know the path is not always linear and smooth some people can not use drugs for two years relapse and then stop using again for five years you know we have to understand that everybody has their own journey and we've just got to do all we can to support them so that they can they can be happy you know to, to be drug-dependent, is as I understand it, is just a miserable way of living because when you wake up, you're not asking yourself, what am I going to do today to make myself happy and whole? You ask yourself, where am I going to go get this drug? And that's what leads people to engage in criminal behavior when otherwise they never would.
1: So uh, we know that uh, the initial, the first phase, of course, came about because uh, uh it was thought that this was a good medicine to prescribe and so a lot of people got on it through very legitimate prescriptions how are people getting on the habit now are there people out there actually pushing people to get on fentanyl
2: there there are a couple different ways for people to become addicted to opioids at this point pills still remain a problem uh we passed a law a few years ago at my request the general assembly did unanimously called the stop act to reduce overprescribing. The amount of pills that have been prescribed historically in the United States are orders of magnitude more than any other country per capita in in the world. And we don't have more pain here. It was just, like I said, the medical community was sold a bill of goods. There's been about a 30 to 40% reduction in the number of pills prescribed per capita, but that's still a lot more than any other country. So when they're not using their prescription, discard it. Go to one of these drop boxes at one of the drugstores, stores or every once in a while, all the police departments have a place you can take old leftover medication. That way a kid who might be interested in experimenting won't get their hands on it. And so uh, get rid of the old pills. The other way is people use, take different kinds of drugs. They may take some prescription pill that's not an opioid, Or they may take cocaine or they may take marijuana and what the criminals are doing right now is they're lacing all of these drugs they're polluting the entire uh drug uh chain with fentanyl which is highly addictive and so somebody may think they're taking one type of drug but then become addicted to fentanyl because that's what the drug pushers put in it and tragically that's resulting in a lot of death that's why you know, today on average, eight people are going to die with fentanyl in their system here in North Carolina. Don, eight people are going to die tomorrow, and, and eight people are going to die the day after that. And it it is absolutely heartbreaking and devastating. I, I've met so many parents who have lost their children to this crisis, and you know, it, it tears them up. I mean, you can only imagine what it's like. And then, um, so they want to do everything they can they can to make sure other parents don't feel that pain.
1: Well, it, it's uh, you know as you said, uh, you have to be very careful. Anything you put in your body, you need to be sure of the source and be sure that it's something that uh, uh, does not lead to this kind of disaster. Eight a day—that's that's kind of incredible. That that is not a fact that is well publicized. Yeah, uh, as much yeah. as I think it should be. How, how do we how do we change that? How do we get more publicity out on the dangers of fentanyl?
2: Well, I really appreciate you having me on this. This is one way we do it. But that's why I've been traveling the state. I've done about 40 um, briefings with local government officials to learn how are they going to invest their money. And in so doing, we're inviting the local papers to come out. You know, some of these small towns, there's just one, you know, one little community newspaper. But getting a story in that can really shed light for the entire community. Um, you know, I'm working with a couple uh, legislators on a bipartisan basis on some bil- bills to address the problem as well. You know, there's no base, no legitimate reason to have one of these pill presses. And that's how the drug dealers are transforming fentanyl so that it looks like a legitimate pharmaceutical. And so there's a, a stop counterfeit pill act that Tom McGinnis, Senator McGinnis, has introduced. And Representative Blackwell has a novel opioid control act, which is going to limit how much. Uh, add additional drugs to our controlled substances act
1: our guest is attorney general joe stein and we'll be back with more right after these messages
0: We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis.
1: Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week, the Attorney General of the State of North Carolina, the Honorable Josh Stein. We talked in the first segment about the uh, fentanyl and opioid problem that we are having in the state. And if you missed that segment, I would urge you to go back and listen to it again. And you can do that by going online to carolinanewsmakers.com. A great segment, lot of very useful information and background uh let's turn to some other things that are on people's minds uh, i think uh, one of the things that i always like to ask the attorney general about because he's been working on this for some time and made a lot of progress and that's robocalls which we're none still, of us really like
2: <laughs> we're at it we're still at it don and we're gonna be at it and we're making progress as you noted but there's always more work to be done because honestly criminals are greedy and they don't always comply with the law. They're not all onshore, so it's tough to get them, but we are deploying strategies to reduce the number of these unwanted calls. Uh, We sued what's called a gateway provider. This is an American telephone company that serves as the funnel through which all of these international criminal calls are made, and then they get them onto the American system and they end up on your and my cell phone, you know, AT&T, Verizon, T Mobile, whoever your carrier is. So, we've taken one of these cases to one of these companies to court because basically they make money on every call and they just look the other way, turn a blind eye uh, because they don't want to know that the calls are bad. But we allege that they did know they were bad and they made it, they, they allowed them on the network regardless. So, in addition to that, I put together a, a robocall litigation task force, every AG in the country. To investigate all of these gateway providers and we have 20 active investigations against companies similar to the one articulate that i took to court um we also uh as you remember from previous conversations i put together a national coalition of ags to negotiate with the phone companies to urge the phone companies to do a better job protecting us because Really, we're in a bit of a technological war where the criminals do one thing and the phone companies have to do another. And there's always more that they can do to shield us. And one change I expect many people have experienced, I certainly have, is that I get more notices that say spam alert or robocall alert nope. when it comes nope. in. And that was something we negotiated with the phone companies for them to do because it's still annoying to get the call, but it at least alerts us to not pick it up. And that is that represents some progress, but, but we're gonna keep at it, Don, don't you worry.
1: Well, it's just a, a real nuisance. And of course uh, it's a waste of time. And, and, and of course the thing that's so sad about this is in many cases, uh, the people that are getting call actually listen to the calls. And uh, most of the people who are doing robo calls are not necessarily your more ethical businesses.
2: Not at all. You know, you know. You ever gotten a call about an extended auto warranty? Uh, Yes. A couple, right? Well, we took one of those, one of the companies that bombarded this state with tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of phone calls, Uh, we took them to court in Texas, and we shut them down. He's out of business, has a $250 million judgment against him uh, that is suspended as long as he stays out of the business. So, Uh, We take this very seriously, and I will aggressively enforce the law.
1: Now, I've got a note here, and I don't know much about this, so I'm going to just throw the term out and see what you have to say. The JetBlue lawsuit.
2: Yeah, so JetBlue is trying to purchase Spirit Airlines. Spirit, as you know, both of these are kind of discount air carriers. You got the big ones that everybody knows, you know, Delta, American, um, United uh and and Southwest but then we have these discount carriers and where the discount carriers operate it has a real um force on lowering prices of the big carriers if the big carriers are running a route and there's not a discount carrier competitor the prices are much higher the second a discount carrier comes into that market the prices go down and that's obviously good for all of us right we want to pay lower tickets that's the beauty of competition well, the problem with JetBlue buying Spirit is that it will reduce competition. It will take some some of these discount carriers out of certain markets and make it so that prices would go up. That's why I joined the federal government and some other states to sue against the proposed merger of JetBlue and Spirit.
1: So uh, when will that be settled or when, that will, when will that come to court?
2: Yeah, it's in court now, uh, and if you can tell me how long it's going to take to resolve, I, I, I'll give you a prize. Uh, but just know, I'm gonna I'm gonna fight this one, and I'm gonna keep fighting for uh, for transportation customers. You know, air, air travel these days is expensive, it's unreliable, it's a headache, and I want there to be more competition, lower prices, and better treatment of customers.
1: I also have a note on here, it says MV Realty Lawsuit. What's that all about?
2: This is a really
1: uh,
2: egregious, terrible business practice. It's, It's a realty company that signs people up to an exclusive listing contract for 40 years. So you're not selling your house now, but they'll give you some amount of money and then they'll say, in exchange, you're gonna give me a 40 year contract. And then they record that document at the Register of Deeds, put a lien on your home so that if you sell your home and you don't use them, they can take out thousands and thousands of dollars. This is an issue that North Carolina Realtors, Realtors Association, hates because it makes realtors look bad. It's an issue that the Real Estate Commission hates because they don't like consumers being harmed. Obviously, an issue I hate. So, we've taken this company to court because of the unfair terms in their contract. Additionally, there is a bill in the General Assembly to outlaw these kinds of contracts going forward. And I'm pleased to say that the House uh, of Representatives, in unanimous bipartisan fashion, passed that bill last week. And it's now in the Senate. And I'm hopeful it will become law to ensure that companies like MV Realty can never operate in our state again.
1: It's very interesting. So many of the issues that you deal with end up being bipartisan as far as uh, the legislature is concerned. We work together. Obviously, we live in tricky
2: political times. There's a lot of fights, and some of the fights are legitimate, and some of the fights are noise. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff that we work on together. It just doesn't get as much media attention when you're cooperating with each other than when you're fighting each other.
1: Well, that's a shame because we ought to reward that because that's uh, that's how government works best when they can come to uh, you know debates, fine and discussion um, versus a lot of First Amendment issues that also get involved with. Uh, uh, it, it's interesting when you start looking at freedom of speech, and I'm reminded of what my one of my uh, old school teachers said one time. He said your your freedom ends where my nose begins
2: it's i agree with that i agree with that we all have free speech but you can't hurt other people with it and um yeah i agree i think government works best when we put our party hats down on the table and start talking to each other about solving problems
1: um you also uh, have been working on the e-cigarette problem for a long time especially with regards to how at one point in time there was obviously an effort to entice young people into using e-cigarettes. Where do we stand on that now?
2: Well, we won a big case against Juul. Juul was the 800-pound gorilla. They're the ones that really sparked this teen vaping epidemic a few years ago with all their advertisements on social media. And thousands of North Carolina teens and uh, millions of Americans got addicted to these e-cigarettes, the the nicotine. And it's devastating in its impact. Uh, I've met with so many kids whose lives were turned completely upside down, failing grades, quitting sports, even requiring medical treatment. And so we made North Carolina the first state in the country to take Juul, this e-cigarette company, to court. And I'm proud to say we were the first state in the country to hold them accountable. And we set a, a standard that the rest of the nation is now following. We changed their marketing and sales practices to protect young people. And we won $40 million so that young people can have help conquering their addiction to nicotine. Uh, and just this week, uh, actually just yesterday or the day before, the a group of other states announced their settlement with JUUL that was modeled on what North Carolina did. So I'm really proud of the work my team has done protecting
1: young people. So, so you feel like this problem is uh at least being attended to and uh, and we're in better shape than we were say two years ago
2: we're definitely in better shape than we were two years ago and and the survey data shows that there there are fewer teens who are vaping today than there were a couple years ago so that that represents progress but there are still too many There are more today than there were five years ago so there are other companies now that are filling the void of Juul now that we've kind of gotten Juul where it should be And uh, we're investigating a number of other of these e-cigarette companies as we speak today.
1: You know, we were talking about young people being lured into things. Senior citizens often are the victims of scams and fraud and so forth, especially. And that's where the robocalls, uh, for example, are one concern. But what else are are you doing to uh, at least put some sort of a cap on how some senior citizens are exploited?
2: Yeah, I I mean, I get a call once, twice a week from people who have a loved one, a neighbor, a colleague, who are in the middle of being scammed. And some of the dollar amounts uh, just make break break your heart. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars, people have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the robocall is a common way in which the scams are initiated. They're not exclusively you get them through social media. Uh, you get them through texting. You, you get them um, through people knocking on people's front doors. But robocalls are the primary way it happens. Common scams include uh, the romance scam, the, the grandparent scam, the government official scam. Uh, the romance scam is somebody will find someone's profile often on social media and strike up a conversation and then move it to email or telephone and sweet talk them and essentially over the period of weeks or months, develop a real emotional relationship, but it's based on fraud. The person is not who they say they are. And as a result, uh, they then strike after they feel like they've got the person on the hook, they pull the hook and they say, send me $4,000 because I'm about to be uh, kicked out of school or or whatever. And we, so that is a problem. The grandchild scam is when a kid will call up the grandma and say, hey, grandma, it's Billy, I'm in trouble. Don't tell mom and dad, I'm in trouble. I need money, help me right now. And they learn that the kid's name is Billy because they followed the grandma's social media site. Uh, and then the government official scam is one we're very familiar with. In fact, I just heard uh, from uh, a dentist who actually went to the bank because they got a call from the county sheriff's department and the phone number said the county sheriff's department said they needed to come up with eight thousand dollars right then or they were going to send the deputies out to arrest them and then by the time he got to the bank he's like wait a minute this makes no sense and so he didn't send the money but what they do whether it's it's romance through love or it's government official or your grandparent scam through fear they get you all excited and when you're excited you don't make good decisions and that's when they want you to send a gift card or to pay with Bitcoin. And if you ever get anyone asking you for payment by gift card or Bitcoin, hang up the dang phone because it's a criminal. Nobody, government does not ask for payment in gift cards. So and in fact, the government never calls you and asks you for money. If you ever get a call from somebody saying they're the government, send me money, hang up, look up the government office in your telephone book or on the internet, Call them directly, and they will tell you, we didn't call you.
1: Our guest is Attorney General Josh Stein, and we've got two more segments. We'll talk about interesting things that affect us all here in the state of North Carolina, and we'll do that right after we return after these messages.
2: 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke.
0: Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke.
2: My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak.
0: Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. To ask your doctor, check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association,
1: and the Ad Council.
0: Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis,
1: and welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is the Attorney General of the State of North Carolina, the Honorable Josh Stein, and uh, we have talked uh, very on several very interesting topics so far. Again, if you missed it, we urge you to go back and listen to, it, especially that first segment on the uh, fentanyl and uh, opioid crisis. That was very interesting, and you could do that by going to carolinanewsmakers.com. Well, you know, you hardly turn on the TV or listen to radio these days without hearing about a shooting. And, of course, gun control and gun violence has been an issue that we've been, as a country, dealing with now for years. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of arguments that can be made. One is that guns don't kill people. People do and that uh, a criminal can get a gun on the other hand uh, there's uh, the side that says well if we control the of guns there may be fewer out there it's a complicated issue and and one that uh, uh, there's a lot of ways to argue both cases so what uh let's just turn it over to you and you talk about gun control for a few minutes and and all these uh shootings that we're having today and of course people are very concerned about the children they safe at school and many of these are just so random that they're scary
2: it's terrifying and there was just a shooting in Goldsboro yesterday and a teenager was killed and a couple of other people were shot um gun violence is now the number one cause of death of children in this country just, just let that sink in first time in history it hadn't been car crashes or disease or anything else it's it's gun violence in north carolina 121 children died due to firearms so so we've got a situation that needs addressing um most gun owners i I fully support people's second amendment rights most gun owners are very responsible but too many don't lock up their guns they just leave them in their glove compartment and they get stolen and then they get into the wrong hands Uh, too many people buy guns who shouldn't be buying guns? If you have a, a violent person, have a violent criminal record, uh, if you're a domestic abuser, you shouldn't be buying a gun. But we don't have rules to protect against those things. One way I think about this, Don, is a gun is very much like a car. It's a piece of metal that's a tool, and. After World War II, the number of people who were dying on our roads, our streets and roads, was astronomical. Our our roads were a place of carnage. We didn't just accept that. We didn't just say, okay, you know what? We all need cars. Therefore, we're just going to allow all these people to die. We made speed limits. We put in seatbelt rules. Then we put in airbag rules. Then we put in crash crumple zones in cars. Then we put in baby seats for children in the back. Then we Put in rumble strips on the highway then we put in drunk driving laws to uh, address impaired driving we did all of these things not a single one of them is responsible for fixing the problem but when you put all of them together we've actually reduced the deaths per road mile traveled by 96 percent. there are literally hundreds of thousands of americans alive today who would be dead if we had done nothing and just accepted the status quo We should not accept the status quo with guns. We should make sure these dangerous people, violent felons, domestic abusers, can't get guns. You have universal background checks to make sure that happens. You need to make sure that people who have mental illness challenges, that when a parent or a neighbor or friend sees that person as a risk to themselves or to to other people, that they can go and get that gun temporarily removed. That's a red flag law. We need to make sure that kids, 18, 19 year old, are not buying guns. You cannot buy a beer, you cannot buy a cigarette, but you can buy an AR-15. It doesn't make sense. So there are things we can do that are common sense that do not impinge on anyone's Second Amendment constitutional right, but would make us all safer. And that's what I think we need to be doing. We certainly don't need to be taking steps backwards, which the General Assembly just did, overriding the governor's veto, getting rid of the pistol permitting practice here in North Carolina, which was a background check that sheriffs were able to do to keep guns out of violent people's hands.
1: So uh, you're uh, suggesting that a lot of little things would be better than nothing at all, and that's kind of what we're doing right now. Well, we're not doing little things. Yeah,
2: Nothing at all is what we're doing
1: now. And,
2: yeah, I'm I'm not looking... To go take people's guns. Uh, what I want to do is make sure that guns are used responsibly and kept safely and securely. Uh, you look at the number of people who die by suicide because they can go get their parents' guns, and, and it breaks your heart. It just breaks your heart.
1: Well, it's it's a it's a very interesting situation, and one that uh, uh, we're not the only state that's dealing with this. Uh, how are other states dealing with guns that? Uh, we might model after. Well,
2: uh, other states have passed the red flag law. Indiana did it a few years ago and they had a significant reduction in suicide deaths uh, because people who were not mentally well couldn't get the gun or had it temporarily removed. Um, You know, there are fewer gun deaths uh, in states that have laws with common sense protections than there are in states with no laws. I mean, you just look around the country and see where uh, gun deaths are disproportionate. It's in the states that have no no protections whatsoever.
1: Well, it's an interesting thing. And, of of course, uh, uh, there are very uh, persuasive arguments for a number of different positions. And they're not necessarily wrong, as you've suggested. But uh, uh, guns in the wrong hands are the problem. And uh, that's what we've got to deal with.
2: You hit the nail on the head. We do not want guns in the wrong people's hands. And there are things that we can do to reduce the likelihood that the wrong people have a gun.
1: Yeah. Uh, I also have on my notes here uh, that Jason gave me, our producer, Criminal Justice Fellows Program. Tell me about that.
2: That that's a really exciting program that, again, you talked about working in a bipartisan basis. This is an idea that my office had, but the legislature said, let's do it. It it was not Democrat, Republican. It was what's gonna make sense. We need more public spirited, good people going into law enforcement. You know, law enforcement's a tough, tough job, incredibly honorable, and we need good people to become cops. So this CJ Fellows is modeled after the teaching fellows program, which identifies good folks, good young people in high school and says to them, If you go get educated, we'll lend you the money for that education. And then if you serve in law enforcement for four years, we will forgive that loan. You will get your education 100% for free. You'll have a good job and you will be serving the community and the state. And the reason why I'm excited you asked me about this is there are a lot of high school seniors right now wondering what the heck am I gonna do next year? And on April 30th, is the deadline for applications and so if any parents or grandparents out there are listening to this call up your your child or your grandchild and say hey here's a way you can make a difference in your community and you can get your education paid for for free Uh, the website is ncdoj.gov slash cjfellows ncdoj.gov cjfellows
1: we will, uh, give that, uh, address again a little later on. This will give people a chance to get a people, a uh, pencil and paper and, and write that down. But that sounds like a very interesting program. Uh, we're talking about the legislature. What, uh, bills are pending the legislature that affect your office and uh, give us a backdrop on, on what, which ones might uh, be enacted.
2: I highlighted three bills when we opened up our conversation talking about fentanyl that I think are really important. One is the Fentanyl Control Unit to give us prosecutors so we can break up these drug trafficking rings in North Carolina. One's the Novel Opioid Control Act so that we can ensure that all of these deadly chemicals, deadly drugs that are on the streets in our state are actually covered by state law. And then the third is the Stop Counterfeit Pill Act which goes to try to make sure that we don't have these pill presses that can uh, convert fentanyl to make it look like some legitimate uh, pharmaceutical. Uh, we're also going to work with the legislature on this issue of C.J. Fellows and other ideas to recruit and retain law enforcement, because that that's just a really important issue facing our state.
1: We uh, have had a lot of talk about inflation. Uh, inflation, of course, puts pressure on people's pocketbooks does the crime rate go up during periods of inflation because people are short of money
2: you know I haven't done an analysis that is sensitive to crime rate and inflation rate I mean there's no question but we saw it with COVID right when people's lives were dislocated turned upside down the crime rate spiked that's why we've seen an increase in in homicides so It makes sense when economics are bad and people are struggling, they can't afford whatever it is that they need to live. They'll do what it takes. Uh, And sometimes that includes breaking the law. And when that happens, we've got to hold folks accountable.
1: What are our our new uh, aspects that retailers are trying uh, to cut down on uh, shrinkage or or, uh, shoplifting, which the honest person pays for in the end.
2: Well, I just had a, a really important meeting with the Truckers Association about skimming. That's where you go to the pump and you put your credit card in. They The criminals are actually inserting technology so that when you put it in, they will read your card information off of the stripe off the back of the card. And they do two things with it. When it's you and me, they will take the credit card uh, and then sell it on the dark web and people will make purchases uh, until somehow our credit card company or you figure out that fraud is being conducted on the credit card. But the way they stick it to gas stations is they will have what are called bladder trucks, which are big trucks, but inside they have all kinds of uh, vast amounts of uh, storage capacity. So the criminals will come and essentially empty out the gas tank of a a petrol station, put it in this big bladder truck, and then pay with a card that was just skimmed. And then depending on what the contract is between the gas station and the bank, either way, one of them is gonna eat a huge loss. And when they have that loss, at the end of the day, we know who pays for it. It's gonna be you and me and everybody else. And so we were brainstorming about things that we can do to address this problem of skimming.
1: You know, some of these 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 uh, schemes are so ingenious, you wonder if these people were in legitimate businesses how rich they could really become <laughs> because they have you have to be brave to come up with some of these schemes. Well, not only that, but they are able
2: to engage in a technological war. I mean, we now have these chip cards, right? The chip cards are more secure than the old kind of credit cards that have just the magnetic strip on the back. And so, the second that one of these gas stations improves their technology at the pump, the criminals come up with a new way to read it, uh, and it, it's it, it's it's technological warfare. Uh, and we also see. Retail theft at some of these big home shopping stores, you know, Lowe's, Home Depot, where a criminal ring will sort of organize a rush at the store and then rush the door out, so that the security guard, there's no way they can deal with all of uh, the the crime that's happening at any one moment. And so there are real problems. <laughs> it really hit home with me at the drugstore. I went to go get some shampoo or something. Everything was locked up like you couldn't get anything uh, without having to go to the front door and get them to come unlock it so you could get the product off the shelf because there's so much petty retail theft happening and it, it needs to be taken very seriously by law enforcement because if we don't take it seriously, then it's just a cost of doing business and all of our prices go up.
1: Our guest is Attorney General Josh Stein, and we've talked about a number of issues. We have one final segment, and we will take time out for these messages, and when we come back, we'll go into some, uh, more in the final, that final segment and talk about those issues. You stay tuned.
0: I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain sleet and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire.
1: Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires.
0: Here's a fun fact for you. The average chameleon can point their eyes in two different directions. On the other hand, the average human can't. So unless you're a chameleon, there's absolutely no way you can focus on texting and driving at the same time. So don't do it, unless you're a chameleon. Visit stoprex.org, A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis.
1: Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is the Attorney General of the State of North Carolina, Josh Stein. We've had some very interesting discussions in this program, and if you have missed the earlier segments, especially that first segment, which dealt with the uh, uh, fentanyl problem, I would urge you to go back and listen to it. You can do that by going to carolinanewsmakers.com and hearing the entire broadcast or just those segments that you want to focus in on. Uh, again, uh, we appreciate uh, your time, uh, Mr. Attorney General, and. Uh, one of the things that we haven't talked about that is in the news is TikTok and Instagram and other social media platform problems, and there are a lot of them. So I'm going to sort of turn you loose and bring us up to date on that. Thanks. Uh,
2: there's no question that these social media platforms have a real harmful impact on young people. The study after study shows that using social media platforms can lead to depression, anxiety, uh, eating disorders, even suicide. And so we've got to do more to protect our young people. Um, I've taken a couple of strategies to to address this issue. One is we created something called a family tech agreement, which is on our website, just Google NCDOJ and family tech agreement. And it's really, it's written at like the fourth or fifth grade level. And it's all about, being a tool that parents can use to spark a conversation with their children about responsible ways to use the internet. Um, you know, don't talk to strangers. If if something happens that's makes you feel weird, uh, talk to an adult. Talk to your parent about it. Don't put anything on the internet that you wouldn't show a teacher, because if you put it on the internet, it will be captured and somebody adult can see it. And then, of course, remember that there is life. Uh, in the real world, too, and spend time out there, which is really important. The average middle schooler spends five and a half hours on screens a day. The average high schooler spends eight and a half hours a day. It it is absolutely troubling. And I think that for those of us like you and me, Don, who grew up before there were these handheld devices and screens, uh, we, we can't really understand the impact, the seriousness of the impact. And then on on the law enforcement side, I am on the executive committee of two investigations. One is against TikTok and one is against Instagram, which is owned by Meta Facebook. And we are investigating them. We're getting information to learn how dangerous is their product, what policies do they have in place, one, to induce young people to use and to continue to use and to become addicted and what policies do they have to protect young people and those investigations are ongoing uh, it is all about trying to keep kids safe because you know we want kids to be safe wherever they are whether they're at, at school uh, whether they're at summer camp whether they're in little league whether they're at church or whether they're online which is increasingly where they spend time
1: well it's a it's a tough issue and it's almost uh... It's, there, I guess there's some parallels to draw with the uh, fentanyl problem because it can become an addiction in the, some cases. The problem
2: with the reason why I'm so focused on kids, whether it's opioids, whether it's e-cigarettes, whether it's social media, is because the the brain of a teenager is still in development, and the the way that brain is formed as a teenager will impact what happens to them as an adult. There is almost no adult who is addicted to anything, whether it's alcohol, cigarettes, drugs. There's almost no adult who started their addiction as an adult. They all started when they were teenagers. And then they develop what's called the neural pathways, where they then become more likely to be addicted to other things in the future. And that's why I wanna do everything I can to protect kids. So we're helping them as they're in formation, but also, to help them when they become adults
1: i i want to take this break right now before we get back to another serious question or another issue you gave a couple of addresses on how to get information and uh we said that we would give you a chance to repeat those so that folks had a chance to get pen and paper and uh, so here's your chance <laughs>
2: So if there's any person, any adult out there who knows a high schooler or a recent graduate who would be open to a career in law enforcement, we have a great program called the CJ Fellows Program. The application deadline is April 30th. What it says is we will pay for your education if you serve the state in law enforcement for four years. So ncdoj.gov slash CJ Fellows, ncdoj.gov slash CJ Fellows. And then basically, if you want to learn more about anything else about the family tech agreement, about our investigations into TikTok, our work on opioids, actually, there's a great website. I'm glad you said that on the opioid settlement called ncopioidsettlement.org. And that website has all kinds of information about the extent of the problem, but it also explains how much money each county is getting because of our settlements. And then importantly, as the companies spend the money, there's going to be a public accounting so that you can go look and see what did Anson County do, what did Carteret County do, what did Durham County do, and did they have a positive impact? What were the results of their investments? Uh, because we want this money to mean something.
1: Thank you very much for that and great information. And we urge people to uh, this is one of those good things that the internet brings us more information and more access to information that we can really use. And so. We urge you to take advantage of those websites. Uh, Okay, so now uh, in recent uh, days, uh, there's been an announcement that you may be seeking higher office. Is that a rumor? (laughs) It is not
2: a rumor. I have officially launched a campaign for governor. Uh, I've been attorney general for six, six and a half years now. And when Governor Cooper's second term is over in 2024, He's term limited. He cannot run again. And so I will be running for governor. As attorney general, I have taken on big fight after big fight on behalf of the people of North Carolina and delivered for the people, whether it's taking on the big drug companies and the opioid crisis or it's eliminating the backlog of untested sexual assault kits in the state or it's uh, protecting kids from vaping and and other social media addiction. Or whether it's going after polluters who poison drinking water or it's defending people's fundamental freedoms like their right to reproductive choice and the right to vote. These are all things that I have done as attorney general. These are fights that I've taken on. And that's the passion I want to bring to the governor's office. I want to be able to serve the people and make sure that this economy truly works for everybody. That it, And it works statewide, including small town North Carolina and not just the big cities. I wanna make sure that our schools are strong and kids can get a good education. I wanna make sure our healthcare system works and is affordable and accessible to everybody, no matter where they live, including rural North Carolina or how much money they earn. And of course, we gotta make sure people are safe, whether they're safe at home, in their neighborhood, at school, in their community.
1: So this uh, is when did you get interested in public service? Uh, Because that's a career and uh, it's a it's a challenging career. Uh, What uh, sparked your interest to get involved in public service?
2: I I would say uh, my family and my faith. And it's been something. It's who I am. Uh, My parents raised my brother, sister and me to try to make a difference. And, And my faith teaches me that we are called to make a difference. That's part of what we must do here in, in our time on Earth and so uh for me and honestly Don it was never a question
1: it's just uh been the way you've been led in your entire everything you've done is led up to this point uh and uh, so now one other question is what have you learned as attorney general that you think will be beneficial should you be elected governor
2: I've learned that you have to be able to work across the aisle to get anything done, and that's particularly true in a politically divided state that, like North Carolina. I mean, we're, we're as purple as they come. We, we're a 50-50 state, and the Republicans are in power at the legislature, and I, I don't anticipate that they'll lose control of the legislature after the next election. Uh, they may not have the supermajority they have now, but they will definitely be in control Uh, There'll be other Republicans who are in other council state seat races uh, and you have to be able to work together. You have to be able to look. There'll be issues we fight about and we differ, but there are going to be a lot of other other issues where we can work together. And it's how I have served as attorney general on the opioid fight. My fellow lead state uh, was Tennessee and, and the Republican attorney general there, Herbert Slatery. And you have to work together on bipartisan basis if you want to get anything done. Uh, as attorney general. And I know that if you want to get things done for the people of North Carolina as governor, you have to work together on a bipartisan basis as well.
1: Generally speaking, North Carolina is in better shape than most government uh, most states with regard to our debt, with our uh, um, uh, with all aspects of our budget. Uh, What will be the key platform issue that you will bring forth with regard to the economy? The the main thing
2: we have to do is ensure that the conditions for businesses and individuals to thrive economically exist and that they exist not only in Charlotte, Greensboro and Raleigh, but they exist in Salisbury and Boone and Jacksonville in Elizabeth City all across the state. And what do rural communities need to thrive? They need to have broadband. So we have to have universal access to broadband, and it has to be affordable. We have to have good infrastructure, like roads and railroads. We have to have ports and airports. Uh, we got to make sure every community has a hospital. No community can thrive. No business will locate in a town where... There's not a hospital. Their, their managers won't accept that. And their employers, employees won't want to work there. So they have to have access to health care. You have to have good schools. That includes in rural North Carolina. And that's probably the biggest failing of our General Assembly is they have ceased investing in public education in a meaningful way. We are 50th. We are last in the country in terms of how much we invest in public education as a share of our state's economy. And that's an embarrassment. And as a result, uh, teacher vacancies are greater than they've ever been. Teachers are leaving the profession. We've got to support our educators. We've got to raise teacher pay. We've got to make sure that the supports exist in the schools, like school counselors, nurses, uh, uh, psychiatrists to make sure kids are healthy. Got to have early childhood education so the kids come to school healthy and ready to learn. Strong community colleges, strong universities, these are the issues I'm going to fight for as governor.
1: Well, uh, you left me just enough time to thank you very much for being with us. And a reminder that if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear the entire broadcast. Uh, it's available right now. That's what right the program ends. carolinanewsmakers.com. And we'll be back next week with another interesting guest. So until next week, have a good week, everybody.